So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Mark chapter 8. If you have a device, you can uh, go onto a Bible app and, and go to Mark 8. We're going to be in the English Standard Version so you can follow along. It was never my dream uh, to begin uh, an Easter sermon with Joel Osteen, uh, to be honest with you. But what, uh, what Ray pointed out in his testimony, like I just said, it has a lot to do with the passage that we'll be reading, which is that the Jesus of Joel is really just the Jesus lurking in all of our hearts. And it's a Jesus that will ultimately disappoint you. And it's a Jesus that will ultimately disappoint me. Why? Well, because he's the Jesus of our dreams rather than the Jesus that comes in and redeems your dreams because they are the wrong dreams. They're the wrong dreams that put Jesus in your debt. And what they do is they end up leading you to disappointment and disillusionment. Um, and again, it's not so much Joel for us this morning. Joel's an easy target. It's that Joel is serving what's already in our own hearts. He's giving us that prosperity gospel that already lurks in our own hearts, right? It's a little like McDonald's in some ways. Poor McDonald's, right? Taking all the hits. They just serve an already there desire for food that's fast and momentarily filling for us. I know it's already the darkest Easter sermon you've ever heard, but just wait until we begin reading here in Mark chapter eight. I'm gonna pick up in verse 27, and this is what it says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, uh, John the Baptist, and others say uh, Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about them. So let's just pause right there for a minute, because what we have here is we have Jesus now on a 25-mile journey is what it was from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And he begins a conversation with them in uh, verse 27 by asking, he says, who do people say that I am? Right? What is popular opinion? What is word on the street? It almost sounds like a trick question in some ways. Like if my wife asks me that question, right? Who do people say that I am? I'm probably going to lead with um, greatest person ever. Like I, you know, I just, I want to keep it cool. I want to keep in her good standing, right? But if we've been walking with Jesus from town to town, like the disciples had been, we would have known that the identity of Jesus was kind of a hot topic, right? It was something that people were tweeting about constantly. It was constantly on everybody's minds. It was constantly on everybody's lips. So the disciples answer Jesus and they say, well, uh, since you asked, word on the street is that you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or you're one of the old prophets, which is interesting, actually, the way they answered because none of those things were true. Jesus hadn't been reincarnated, right? He had been preaching the gospel. He had been healing the sick. He had been forgiving sins, which meant he was putting himself in a category, not like those old prophets, but equal to God. And so he flips the question then on them pretty quickly and asks, okay, who do you say that I am? And of course, what happens next is that Peter crushes it. 
Peter nails it. It's like it might be the first right thing that Peter has ever said in his life. You know, from what we read about Peter, he says, you are the Christ. Now, if we go to Matthew's gospel that tells the story, Jesus actually tells Peter why his answer is so significant. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, another name for Peter. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. I'm changing your name, brother. You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in order to even have a Jesus that doesn't disappoint, here's my first point, we need God to believe that Jesus is God. We need God to believe that Jesus is God. Jesus reveals something important to us about our faith in him, which is that it's his gift to us. It's a gift of God. It's not something we inherit from being raised in a Christian home or because we attended Sunday school as a kid or we went forward in an altar call like every single time we went to the youth retreat. I don't want to ask for hands on that one, right? I'm going to have to just bounce my hand up like 53 times, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, the apostle Paul reminds us, he said, for by grace you've been saved. Remember, he's saying, you've been saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not you. He says it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Pretty plain, pretty clear. But here's the rub for us. And this was the rub for Peter and the disciples. The rub is if a person believes Jesus is the Christ, it means something incredibly specific about who Jesus actually is. It means that knowing Jesus is more than simply getting his name right. I remember back in our dating days, I think we were one phone call in to, to me and Melissa's dating days. I called her, she wasn't at home. I left a message with her dad, which made me question whether this whole thing was even gonna work out after that, right? I was depending on, on her to get the message. So I don't hear back from this lady for like three weeks. And I'm like, all right, I, try, you know, I tried, I tried, it's not gonna work out. I thought she was the one of my dreams. I guess not so much, right? Then I finally get a call three weeks later from this chick, right? And I'm like, wait, you know, way to keep me hanging, you know, way to make me think that this thing was never had any chance of working out. And she tells me this, she says, I've actually been calling another Ronnie and having conversations with them for three weeks. crazy. Name, right, person, wrong, right? I mean, the, the, the deal is, is that Melissa needed me to know the real me. And so what can happen to us, like what's happening here with Peter, is we can get the name of Jesus right, but be wrong about who he is, what he says, and what he's calling us to. Because look what happens to Peter when that goes wrong in verses 31. Let's pick up in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter says, 
I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ. So Jesus responds and says, great. Now let me tell you about the mission of Christ. Suffer, be rejected, die, rise again after three days. And notice it says in verse 32 that he spoke plainly, meaning there, there was no way to confuse the message, right? They didn't need an interpreter, right? They didn't need some seminary grad, some young cocky kid to come along and say, let me help you understand, fellas. Like, that's not what they needed. He spoke plainly, but Peter already had in his heart a completely different life plan for Jesus than Jesus had for Jesus. Which brings me to my second point, which is that the Jesus of our imagination is not the real Jesus, right? Now listen, the majority of the Jews waiting for the Messiah to appear, man, they had Jesus, they had him rolling into town as this all-conquering political and military hero king, right? I mean, like a black limo and everybody like following him down the street, rolling into town, ready to take over. That's how they envisioned Jesus coming into town. So for Jesus to mention suffering and death as part of the unfolding of his plan, that was just unthinkable. It was unthinkable that that would happen to somebody that the Jews were expecting to come and relieve them from the oppression of the Roman government. In fact, in fact Peter's so offended by Jesus' comments that he pulls him aside and starts rebuking him in verse 32. Can you imagine just saying, oh, I know the creator of the universe here, but let me tell you a few things about what you just said and how wrong you are. I mean, it sounds crazy to us, but it's what happened. Peter's like, can we hit the brakes on all the death talk, Jesus? I mean, didn't I just say that you are the Christ? What's, what's going on here? Well, Peter got the name right, but he got the mission wrong. He wanted Jesus the Savior, not Jesus the suffering Savior. And there's a big difference between those two things. He wanted the Jesus of his imagination. He wanted a Jesus of his own making. And the problem is that this is a serious misrepresentation of who Jesus is. How serious is it? Well, serious enough, all right, after we, what we just read, that Jesus rebukes Peter in full earshot of the other disciples, and then secondly, has a quick chat with Satan. Like, that's how serious Peter's misrepresentation of the mission of Jesus was. I mean, this thing escalates quickly. And it was one, one rebuke from Peter. Peter's like, what did I say? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so what this reminds us of is that all the time Jesus is at work, there is an adversary at work to try and reverse God's plan of redemption that Jesus came to earth to fulfill. And one of the ways that Satan works is to try and influence those closest to Jesus to get them to believe something about Jesus that isn't true. So in other words, it's like, go ahead, Pete, believe Jesus, but make sure it's what you want to believe about Jesus. I mean, it kind of sounds a lot like the trick that was pulled on Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, doesn't it? When the serpent came in and said, hey, did God actually say what he said? Is this somebody that can be trusted? Is this somebody you need to rethink about? It's very similar because again, it's an old trick and it's not something that's had a lot of revision throughout the years. 
And of course, Satan eventually succeeds in influencing one particular disciple, a guy named Judas Iscariot, which by the way, to this day, has never made the list for most popular boy names we've noticed, right? Why was Jesus so concerned here? Why does he rebuke Satan? Well, because making Jesus into our own image dismantles the heart and mission of Jesus, which was to save us from the wrath of God. We just sang about it when we sang in Christ alone. Ronnie, this is the least Eastery sermon I have ever heard in my life. Maybe. For Peter, the most disappointing thing he could imagine was for Jesus to be rejected, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. That wasn't part of the mission Peter had in mind for Jesus. And yet, it was the only Jesus that would end up not disappointing Peter in the end. So then that begs the question for us as we're here this morning, how many of us have re-engineered and reinterpreted and recast Jesus as someone who always caters to our comforts, right? Never utters a word we don't like. Or on the flip side, has become someone that has failed us one too many times so we completely disregard him altogether. Because in the end, you either have a Jesus who is an imaginary friend, a despised enemy, or a trustworthy savior, right? The problem is that the Jesus of your own making will be a Jesus that disappoints. Well, in what ways? In what ways will he disappoint? Well, first off, a Jesus that disappoints is first, a Jesus whose words are open to your interpretation. A Jesus whose words are open to your interpretation. Listen, if every time your friend tells you something about themselves that may or may not be true, eventually you will interpret everything they say as a lie because you won't know what to believe anymore, right? I mean, that's just common logic. If you make a decision to believe what you want about what the Bible declares to be true about Jesus, then eventually you'll end up with a Jesus who is just incredibly flippant. I mean, I don't know, what is he saying here? Did he mean what he said here? I mean, can I trust what he said here? I mean, was he in a bad mood when he spoke these words? I don't know where he was at. That was 2,000 years ago, right? God never intended the words written about Jesus to be interpreted by your emotions or to be interpreted by your worldview or to be interpreted by your political position or even interpreted by some of the hurt and the wounds that you may have experienced in your life. And actually, some of that may sound even great in theory to be able to have your own interpretation of the words of Jesus, except you're unable to maintain a trusting relationship with anyone whose words are open to interpretation, right? It makes truth optional. And wherever truth is optional, a lie becomes your only option, right? Where Jesus can't be trusted, you'll find a Jesus that disappoints. John 14, 23, Jesus says this, If anyone loves me, he says, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So reinterpreting the words of Jesus is elevating your words above his, which means you are not really keeping his word and therefore not really loving him because you can't separate those two things is what Jesus is saying you can't claim to love me and follow me if you're going to take my word and you're going to interpret it according to your comfort 
So a Jesus that disappoints is a Jesus whose words are open to your interpretation. Secondly, a Jesus that disappoints is a Jesus who never challenges or corrects your thinking, right? A God that never challenges or corrects your thinking is a God who does, listen, it's a God who does not have his glory as your best interest in mind, right? Why? Well, because it means he's okay with you believing whatever you want about him, meaning he's not a God worthy of following because he's not committed to truth, right? That's what we're seeing unfold here in, in Jesus' dealing with Peter. Think of it like this. If the thing that's going to bring you the most joy is knowing God and treasuring Jesus, then a version of him you've constructed on your own will never be able to bring that joy to fruition. Does that make sense? Listen, we get Jesus right when Jesus writes our wrongs about him. We conform to Christ when we don't simply observe his words. Hey, nice words, nice scribbles on that page, Jesus. But when we obey them, that is what we call Christian freedom because the words of Jesus and the way of the cross is what breaks the chains of your conformity to them. Jesus had to correct Peter's thinking because the alternative, the alternative to that correction was just gonna be this ongoing slavery to sin and to death. It was that serious. A Jesus who doesn't challenge or correct your thinking is a Jesus that disappoints. And thirdly, finally, a Jesus that disappoints is a Jesus who negotiates the cost of following him who negotiates the cost of following him. Listen, God is so holy that the only thing that could pay the price for our sin against him was the sacrifice of his own son. If that cost, listen, is able to be negotiated, then God's holiness is less than he says it is. And your life would not have been worth the cost of him sacrificing his son. If the cost was anything less than the death of Christ, then we would be faced with a God who was less than, right? And a God who was less than would ultimately disappoint us because one, he wouldn't care enough about us. And number two, he would end up being cruel in his demands of us. But neither of those things are true about God. So what we see here is that the cost for Jesus was high, which is why the cost for following him is high. But because he doesn't disappoint, because Jesus doesn't disappoint, it means he's worth giving up everything to follow him. Verse 34, read it with me. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's why the Jesus that rebuked Peter is not the Jesus who disappoints. It's because he didn't allow Peter to remain confused about who he was because he was so fully and utterly committed 
to Peter's joy that he was unwilling to let Satan have the last word in shaping Peter's heart. So if you can relate to Peter on one of these levels, let me offer the possibility that maybe you find yourself wishing for a genie more than a Jesus. Maybe you're angry because you haven't gotten your wish dreams fulfilled this morning. You're so disappointed that life has become this, whatever this is. And maybe it's caused you to become angry at Jesus so you keep him at arm's length as sort of a form of a a silent rebuke against him. But could it be that this Jesus you struggle with or reject is actually a Jesus that doesn't exist? Tim Keller says, describe to me the God you've rejected. He said, describe the God you don't believe in. Maybe I don't believe that God either. Maybe you've created a savior that will inevitably fail and disappoint because he's a savior that you fashioned in your own image. Because that Jesus has no power to fulfill the deepest longings of your soul. That Jesus has no power to fulfill the longing to be known, the longing to be loved, the longing to not be judged, the longing to be accepted, the longing to be free of the approval of others, the longing to have a hope beyond this life, the longing to break from the addictions that just keeps scraping at you and enslaving you, the longing to be released from the need to perform and to amount to something and to add up to something that the world has driven you towards a standard of being that you cannot maintain anymore. The only Jesus that doesn't disappoint is the one who died. It's the one who suffered. It's the one who after three days rose again, which is why that is the only Jesus worth denying ourselves for and picking up our cross and following. Because Christ died, we can die. Because Christ rose, we will rise. And what's so amazing about this exchange between Peter and Jesus, is we get a snapshot of the ways in which Peter grew into that truth. In fact, let's turn to 1 Peter if you want to make a right and go all the way to 1 Peter. We're going to read from Peter's letter in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read how Peter went from the guy who rebuked Jesus to rejoicing in the Jesus that suffered and died. First Peter chapter one, verse three, Peter says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was the crucified and risen Jesus that had become Peter's greatest treasure. So the Jesus that doesn't disappoint is not the Jesus that caters to the prosperity gospel that is just alive and kicking in all of our hearts, that is lurking in all of our hearts, that is just waiting to break through and embrace the Jesus that we want, that's going to cater, that's going to give us what we really think we desire. The Jesus that doesn't disappoint is the Jesus who defeated death. He's the Jesus who gives meaning to your suffering and helps you endure it with hope. The Jesus who defeated death is the Jesus who will one day dry our tears, heal our wounds, turn our mourning into dancing. The Jesus who defeated death is the only Jesus who doesn't disappoint. So your invitation today is to embrace this Jesus. It's to repent of your sin. It's to receive the forgiveness he offers by his grace and be prepared to give your life to the one who will hold your life in his hand until the day when you will see him face to face in glory. The Jesus who doesn't disappoint is the one who defeated death so that all death, all disappointment would not be your fate. So will we receive this grace that the risen Christ offers us today with hope and with joy and with relief that we have a savior who is alive, is interceding at the right hand of the father, listening to our prayers, caring about the intricate details of our life, calling us to a deeper, lasting more affectionate relationship with him where he becomes our everything so that all the other things never have a chance to disappoint us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We believe that he is the risen savior this morning. And Lord, even in our doubts, we know that we have your grace and that you help us to overcome and that you make it so that we can endure through whatever we may be facing. So God, as we consider Christ risen from the dead, would you fill our hearts with such a joy and gratefulness because we have a savior who suffered death so that we might not have to suffer death. And God, for those who have not embraced this truth, who have not repented of their sins, who, is not, who have not received this costly gift of salvation, would you speak to them? I don't have any power in my words, but Lord, your word contains all the power to bring a person from death to life. And so would you do that the way you did it with Jesus? Would you resurrect dead souls this morning? And Lord, for those of us who are struggling, who are hurting, who are in places of trial and suffering, Lord. Would you give us a renewed hope in Jesus Christ, knowing that in this world, 
we might have trouble, but you have overcome the world. And in that we give you praise. And in that we find our true hope. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Together we said, amen.